Welcome, everyone, to this special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is the post-major tradition on this channel, our discussion with the great Hall of Fame tennis writer for Tennis.com, Steve Flink. We get into the 2020 French Open, of course, mainly the final. Uh, that's the majority of the conversation between Nadal and Djokovic, why it was one-way one traffic in favor of Nadal, but we also hit on Stefanos Tsitsipas, on Yannick Sinner, on Dominic Team, and even Iga Swiatek at the end. So uh, this was a really enjoyable discussion. As always, I think you're going to enjoy it. And without further ado, here's Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink of Tennis.com. His latest book, Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, is out on Amazon. And this is a tradition, our post-major chat. I always look forward to it. In this case, going over the 2020 French Open. Steve, thanks for coming on again. Gil, good to be back with you. We'll have a lot to talk about. Well, it was quite the two weeks, a lot of great tennis. We got our dream final, but then it wasn't quite the match we expected. Instead of a highly suspenseful epic, we got a rather one-sided display of Rafa Nadal clay court greatness. Um, and it kind of reminded me of the 2019 Australian Open final. And I know we spoke after that. How much did these two finals remind you of each other? Yeah, I see the parallel. I, I, I agree with you. And I think Nadal agrees with you, which is why he brought it up in the presentation ceremony, right? He says, you killed me in Australia. And that was not a dig. It wasn't like he was saying it like, oh, and now I got even with you today. I think he just meant it in the sense that you can get two top players and everyone expecting them to go four or five tough sets and suddenly it becomes one-sided. Yes, I mean, because obviously Djokovic thought that might have been the best match of his career and everything was clicking for him that day and he just dismantled Nadal at 3-2-3. Three, and three. This time, yeah, even more one-sided for two sets for the way Nadal went through those sets love and two. And then finally, Novak got his teeth into it a little bit in the third set. Surprising to me most was that Djokovic seemed uh, sort of befuddled about how he could impose himself in that match. Because once, the, once it was apparent that the drop shot was not working, and, uh, then he didn't seem to be able to get any rhythm in the exchanges. He made, you know, he made 52 unforced errors compared to 14 for Rafa, and that was a big factor in that he was pressing. So I, 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 it, was, it was fascinating. In turn, Gil, we got, I must say, it was one of the best matches Rafa has ever played at Roland Garros, or maybe anywhere in the world, because... He had that great combination of offense and defense. The other thing that was the other thing that struck me was the way Rafa fended off some of Novak's biggest shots. And Djokovic commented on that later, said so many balls were coming back. He was so impressed with that because he'd think he had the point one. He said they would have been winners against anybody else. And Rafa, you know, would extend that arm, open stance off the forehand and, and hit some of those deep down the lines to extend the points. And then he, same thing up the back end, he used the slice. And then when he could open up and hit a cross court at sharp angle for winner, he'd do that. He, he didn't put a tactical foot out of line to dial that whole match. So I must say, we got to balance the scales between his utter brilliance and Novak having an off day. Novak played so many drop shots throughout the tournament. And I think they were somewhat effective against most of his opponents until the final, and Nadal just handled them beautifully. First of all, I'm, I'm curious, what did you think of Djokovic's use of the drop shot, uh, his continued and frequent use of the drop shot throughout the tournament? And by the way, I, I don't want to just say it like it just started in this tournament. I think 
Djokovic throughout the entire season has been using them a lot. What do you think of that tactic? And then why did Nadal just smother uh, the, the drop shots as well as he did? Well, I think there are a couple of things, Gil. I, I, I would maybe be a little bit more, give him a little more praise for the way the drop shot was working against the others, which led him to believe that it could work against Rafa. Then the obvious point of if he's not finding any holes in Rafa's game and the backhand was so on, where did he go? How could he end the point that he got frustrated with his inability to hit penetrating shots that would win points. So the drop seemed logical. Plus it at the very first game, he did win a couple of points with it right off on his way to 40-15, which was another issue with Novak, Gil, that struck me as a carryover from his semifinal with Cispedes, closing out games. I mean, Novak had 40-15 in the first game and didn't hold. He had later on in the fifth game, down love four, he had 40-love and didn't hold. And then in between, he had break points against Rafa that he didn't convert. So you look at three of those first five games could easily have been his, and he certainly should have held one of those times. And but I would say to get back to the drop, he felt like I, he wanted to get him off the baseline. And it was such an effective one-two punch against everybody else where he drop shots down the line off the back and moves in, sees the response, lob volleys over the opponent mm -hmm. and, and takes control. And also that was, must have been very tiring and fatiguing for his opponent. So, But the surprise to me, Gil, is to get back to your point is that he didn't recognize sooner that he should pretty much discard it and use it as a, uh, you know, as an, as a sort of an occasional surprise, work it in here and there instead of so regularly, because Nadal did start to easily anticipate it. And then that was, became a giveaway to Rafa that Novak wasn't trusting his bigger, his biggest shots. He wasn't trusting his drives and, and that he felt like this was his only option. So I, I don't think that was clear thinking on the part of Djokovic. And I felt Rafa moved up on the baseline and yeah. definitely made that adjustment. And then once he got there, I felt there were a lot of times where on Novak's drop shot, Rafa would, would get to the ball and his contact point, he would dig it up from below the level of the net. And that's a spot that, that Novak is very happy with. And normally he could expect to have a good look at perhaps a, a volley lob or a passing shot but Nadal was so good on his short angles cross court oftentimes, and then mixing up, uh, punching it deep. I just felt he handled it so much better than, than everyone else that Novak had to face. He did, he did. He anticipated it much better. The other factor, Gil, that, that I don't think has been talked about enough, Djokovic, I have to believe, he said after the Cispedes match, which was four hours, that he thought he was gonna be fine with a day and a half off. He would be, he would recover. And I, I, I took him at his word. I thought, well, he, he knows his body, he knows himself, but that may have been sort of, uh, you know, optimistic thinking, trying to talk himself into it. I don't think he, it was that he was hurting. There was no in, apparent injury, anything like that, but he did look sluggish to me. And you got, he really has to be fresh and energetic and moving well. And that's one of his great assets, particularly when he plays Rafa, because we also didn't see the, the famed Djokovic defense, the Gumby defense was not really evident for most of this match, which was another thing that hurt him is that he couldn't defend his way out of the match either any more than he could attack his way through it. So there were so many things going wrong and Rafa obviously exploited all of it to the hill. He was aware of all of it. So he, did, he, he, he made every correct tactical decision throughout that match. And it just was executing impeccably. I didn't think Novak wanted to play long rallies, which 
which would go kind of what would add on to your point. Um, of course, Djokovic would be regretful if that were the case, that he didn't serve out Tsitsipas in the third set and perhaps that he went for against PCB. Uh, but I also observed that Djokovic didn't want to play long rallies. At the same time, I do think that as his career has progressed and he's aged, he's, he's aimed to play less and less long rallies. That's true. I agree with that. I agree with that. But he had to be willing to do it that day, and you're so right. He wasn't. The other thing that, in addition to the, him being a maybe half a step slower than usual, was he had a terrible serving day, Djokovic. Because I thought initially when he was missing, when he was around 40% on first serves early on, okay, once he starts getting some first serves in here, it didn't make much, that much difference later on when he did because he wasn't, yeah. getting a, wasn't getting the free points. And I don't think Rafa changed anything drastically, but he was able to read it easily. Novak wasn't finding the corners as regularly. He's such a great spot server normally. And he wasn't that day. And that's, that's, uh, that is catastrophic against somebody as good as Nadal, who's so adept at getting returns back into play and then taking over. Novak needed some breathers there, and he just didn't get them. I didn't even think his holds were that convincing in the third set. I think he just revved himself up a little bit, got a little bit more uh, intensity in him, and, and improved, improved off the ground some, and, and tried to wield his way in there and almost stole a set. But I still wasn't convinced. I still felt like if it had gone four, he would not have won the fourth. Completely agree with you. He was playing low margin in the third set and was finding right. the court just enough to hold yeah, serve. Right. But, but I think little, you're right. But you're right. And it was a little bit, that's a little bit desperate. You know, that's yes. not the way he normally plays. He might, might do that on one big point here and there, but he was doing that constantly. And because he just didn't trust, he didn't trust himself to be able to do anything more than that. And again, Nadal was aware of this. I don't think Nadal would have been that worried at all if he'd lost that set 6-4, lost the third set 6-4 rather than closing it out 7-5. Do you know about the Nadal return in play stat? Have you seen that? Yeah, I had, I have. And Jim Courier talked a lot about it during uh, during during the tournament. Uh, the, the return stats overall about these are the these are the best. Now that was another thing that I found very interesting is Djokovic move, moving back further on the return. I'm not quite sure why. I, I, I think he's taking away his own strength. I think somebody in his camp has got to convince him to basically wipe that out. Because to me, the image I've always had of Djokovic at his best is taking that high return, off, high back in return early, sending it deep down the middle, not even hitting it that hard, but rushing the, putting the opponent on the defense immediately. Sometimes winning the point outright, it's coming back at you so fast. Not the speed, but the fact that he's taken it early. And here, you know, I thought that got him into trouble against Cispedes too. By the way, is that when he didn't close him out from match point at five, at five four in the third? From that from that point on, all the way through the fourth, all the squandered break points. But a lot of it had to do with no depth on the return so far back and not getting the depth and Cispedes would step into the court and really take control on, on big break points to save himself. I thought maybe there was a little carryover against Rafa. He didn't have great depth on his returns and he didn't take them early enough or moving. He moved in a bit. I noticed at times in the third that he yeah. did, but get back to your point about I'm drifting a little bit, go back to Rafa. What, what was the point you want to make about the returns in play started, how great it is, right? He, he made, he put 95% of his returns in play right. against Novak right. on Sunday. Yeah. Well, but see, that tells you that, that also tells you as great as it is from Rafa's end, it tells you that something was, 
that sort of uh, affirms that Djokovic didn't serve well. That should never be the case because the first serve percentage w went up considerably from the early stages of the match for Djokovic and he still was not able to win the free points. So that, that's all credit to Nadal for his ability to get the return back in play. But Djokovic would, would need to reassess that and figure out it, it should never, Rafa shouldn't be able to get more than 70% of his returns back uh, against Novak uh, if Novak is serving well. And um, no, Rafa also won point zero through four on return, which is a, a big red red flag for any server. They never want you never want the person returning to be winning the short points. That's right. a, a oh, bad but that, that again, yeah, that that was proof that you know of how well he was he was returning deep. By the way, I, I thought Rafa's returns, particularly off the second, but even off the first, so they were coming back pretty deep and surprising Novak. So that's why you have that stat in. The, in the shorter points because he could get on top of the rally immediately and have Novak on his heels. It, it'll be fascinating to see where it goes from here. Do they, do they, do they now have a more compelling, what happens when they start playing, if they were to meet next year in Australia or Wimbledon or other places, the, the, can Rafa make that work? Can he, can he carry this over onto the quicker courts where he has not beaten them? I mean, he hasn't beaten Novak on hard courts since that 2013 U.S. Open. It's a long time. So does he now, does this give him the confidence? I, I, I think it'll be a lot tougher to pull it off on, but they, they might have some really great matches on the quicker courts too. I agree with you. Be, before we look ahead there, let me, let's hit on the conditions because so much of the rhetoric and the um, discourse leading into the match was about the conditions and how they may favor Novak. What do you think now that we've seen the match play out, what do you think the effects of the conditions ended up being? Well, it's, I think Nadal Gill, you'll tell me if you agree. I think he really came to terms with it. You heard him talking before the tournament. These balls are too heavy. This is dangerous. Why have they done this? He complained about the cold weather because Rafa is just very honest, tells you exactly how he feels. He doesn't care if it's positive or negative. So I didn't take that as whining. I just took that as a certain negativity. And, but I think as the rounds went by and he kept winning everything in straight and he got by Sinner in straight, which could have been a little bit of trouble when Sinner served for the first set, that he, 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 he felt pretty good. He avoided a fourth set against Schwartzman, which was important too. That could have turned into a long fourth set. He would have won. He wouldn't have lost him two sets up, but he might have had to spend another hour on the court himself. So I just felt like I, I, I noticed as, as the rounds were going by, I thought to myself, you know what? He looks to me. I kept saying to myself, I don't know if you did. This looks like the normal Rafa to me. I, I'm not seeing evidence that he can't do great things off the forehand. No, it may be. They said it was bounding up three inches lower. Okay. So it's not as high as he would like it to be when he hits the heavy top, but he still was so effective and missing so little that, and then by the final, he was completely comfortable and in, in a weird way, the balls almost worked to his advantage because Novak was not able to hit through the court. Rafa was more than Novak. And Rafa wasn't missing. He looked entirely comfortable with the, with the conditions of the balls and, and the cool air, don't you think, by, by the final? Yeah, my, my view was that court speed is, was, the, was the real factor because even with the low bounce, you could see Nadal uh, able to get the ball to hop over Novak's shoulders yeah. at times. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the court speed was in favor of Nadal, his big forehand, his strength, his ability to hit through the court, and, and Novak would – much prefer a quicker court that gives that gives him that same advantage. 
I think so. And I think Nadal, you're right. He was able to hit through the court and, and that was, that was, that was really very impressive. I didn't think it was so much true in the earlier rounds, but as he, as he started peaking and especially in the final against Novak. He really got better and better. Right. I mean, if you look at the, especially quarterfinal, semifinal, final, it was just step up, 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 and it built oh, up no doubt. on the final. No doubt. Absolutely, he did, and that's uh, that's that's a champion. As for Novak, I mean, it's interesting. Mats Vilander, I'd never read the piece. I was Googling, and I noticed there was a story, and I couldn't get it on my iPhone, and I gave up. For some reason, it wouldn't click into it, but the headline was, Vilander says Djokovic may have cost himself the final with the long semifinal. He, he, I, I don't know whether he's basing that on the mental side that it was frustrating not to close him out or whether he felt that physically playing almost two more hours was really harmful, but uh, we'll never know how, how, but I'm sure Nadal took note. I'm sure Nadal was happy to see that, uh, that Novak didn't get off the court and straight. Plus you just feel, I felt like Djokovic, it would have been a very confidence boosting triumph if he closed him in straight because he played so opportunistically the first two sets, saving all those break points. And there he was, breaking at four all in the third, serving for the matchman. Surprisingly, he got so tight, Gil, when he wasn't just the match point where he missed the back end down the line, Djokovic, but it was that whole game. He was sort of fighting himself. And there he was finally at match point with Sispitus talking to himself, loudly admonishing himself and angry with himself. And somehow that game got away and it just led to sort of sort of an utter frustration in the fourth with all the missed break points from Djokovic for, uh, after he started slowly. So, uh, you're, but to get back to Nadal, yes, a good quarter, you know, and then a, a better semi and a magnificent final. I want to get to, to Stefanos in a moment, but um, to push back a little bit on the fatigue factor, I do think that it should be noted that the difference between Nadal's match with Schwartzman, which although it was Rafa coming through without really ever seeming like he was in danger of losing, it was only 40, 45 minutes shorter than Djokovic's yeah. match with Tsitsipas, and it was very physical. But he was off the court. You're right. I, I don't disagree with that. He was off the court sooner, though. It, it, you know, yeah, he, he played was. the first match, plays later. And, and I just think when you've had it would have aggravated Rafa, too. If uh, he was in the same situation, almost up a break in the third, ready to close out Diego, and it almost got away from him, but he swept the tiebreak without losing a point. And I think he would have been he would have been kind of annoyed if he'd gone long for himself. I think it's, so some of it is psychological, some of it's physical. I just did feel, though, that Djokovic, physically, he didn't look right to me. Not that there, again, not that there was any injury. There just was a, it, he didn't have that spring in his step in that match. And that, and that was really uh, damaging against a, a totally informed Nadal, you know, who plays one of the, the finest matches of his career. What does Rafa need to do? to turn this rivalry on quicker courts. Do you think that this gives him any kind of blueprint, what he did on Sunday? You know, we're going to find out at the next one or two, certainly the next meeting will be revealing. If they, if they were to meet in Australia, that would be fascinating. If they had another final there with big consequences again, historically, and, and if he was able to do something like that, I, I don't see it. I mean, I got to believe that Djokovic would come back strong psychologically, physically, everything. But we're going to find out. I suppose some of those same tactics could work. 
but I would expect that Djokovic, again, would be hugging that baseline for his returns, getting back to a more aggressive posture. I can't imagine he'd be missing so much off the ground. But we could be in, not to diminish Nadal, I think we could be in for some really hard-fought, close, really interesting contests, which is what we want with these two. You know, things like the five-hour, 53-minute Australian uh, final of 2012 or their epic French semi of 13, which they split with Djokovic winning the former and Nadal the latter. I mean, maybe we can get back to some of those kinds of matches. And wouldn't that be fantastic at the end of their careers if they gave us that? Yeah, count me in. Uh, Pass, we were we were speaking about him after the U.S. Open, and I think we were both kind of concerned about what the effects of blowing six match points would be (laughs) against Borna Cioric. And then he he blew match points in the final of Hamburg against Andre Rublev, but he yeah. just then he went down two sets to love in the first round. The point is he picked himself back up. He made the semifinal. He beat Rublev handedly in the quarter. What did what did we learn about this week about the Greek? Very impressive because that's a quick turnaround from the U.S. Open. And I guess he, he consoled himself feeling like, okay, I didn't close Rublev out. I should have, but it was a final. At least it was a final. And he got good preparation for Paris. And then he overcame that difficult start at Roland Garros, which is understandable because Rublev almost lost to Sam Query and should have lost. Two sets to love down, break down in the third, Sam serving for the match. So they each were in trouble because they didn't, they should have, they needed maybe an extra day or two after playing the final hand. They only had one day off. But I would say to get back to Cispedes, very encouraged about him. Uh, that was, that was, showed some maturity. And also just the way he, uh, granted, he got some help from Novak, who got tight at the end of the third and who squandered opportunities in the fourth. But Cispedes really started opening up his wings, some beautiful back end down the line winners. Mm-hmm. And he showed some terrific fighting spirit. His legs gave out in the fifth. He just was gone physically in the fifth. But the fact that he got there, I think I, I, I like where he's headed. And I, I, I just feel like there's a 50-50 chance almost that he gets on the board at a major somewhere next year with four cracks. Most likely not the French, although he showed by getting that far that he can do well there. But I, maybe it's more likely Australia or U.S., but he's going to be a contender everywhere. And uh, I think he, he likes where he, 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 I think he's encouraged about what he did at Roland Garros. I think outside of Dominic team, as the fire trucks go by, which is always lovely. Um, I think outside of Dominic team, if someone is going to bring their best level um, outside of the big three and Dominic team, I think Pass has the best chance to, to really do damage and go all the way at a major my big takeaway here was that clearly Stefanos learned from the five-set heartbreaking defeat that he suffered last year to Stan Wawrinka because he let that loss linger. He let that, you know, oh, you're so right. You are so right. He absolutely let it linger, and it pretty much ruined his year until the end when he suddenly came on and won the ATP finals in a great match with team. That was a nice step into this year. That, But it really wasn't until that period that he started playing well again. And you're right. This was a very quick recovery. And he also, de- as you alluded to, he also dealt well with the frustrating loss in the final to Rublev on the eve of Roland Garros. So he's, he's in pretty good shape, I think, psychologically and physically. And he's just, he has so much overall, it just has so much ability. It's when he gets hot, when he's in a kind of a rhythmic, hits his rhythmic stride from the baseline, it, it can be sort of hard to contain him. 
he's just he just he, he has he has many gifts and his serve is improving as well and I think he'll maybe start changing some things on the return of serve. He hangs way back. He manages to get some balls back and play, but he, he can also be a, a more aggressive returner and will be in the years ahead. The return might be his biggest weakness. I'm, I'm with yeah. you. Yeah. Um, let's follow up on the U.S. Open champion, Dominic Team. To me, it would have been one of the great accomplishments, maybe in the history of the sport, if he actually won both of these tournaments. And by the time... And he had a tough draw on top of that. By the time he reached the quarterfinal against a game opponent in Diego Schwartzman, who the conditions suited perfectly, he just didn't have enough. Do you, do you chalk it up mostly to fatigue? I do. I do. I mean, I think he made a wise move in not playing anything between the U.S. and French Opens. He needed that. But even then, you could see and you could hear in his comments, he also was being honest like Nadal about the sort of the state of his body and his mind. And he wasn't much sure how much, how, how much further he could go. And it finally caught up to him to the five setter with the, with the Frenchman and, and finally, you know, getting drop shot to death. And then uh, an, an exasperating match against Schwartzman that he probably could have lost in straight, but probably should have won in four, eventually lost in five. I I'm, I'm not worried about him, Gil. I think he, he did the best he could under the circumstances. I expect him to come back strong and, we know he came close to winning the Australian this past year, led two sets to one against Novak. So he'll he'll have another crack there and he'll go back to Roland Garros next year. It'll be very different in terms of, yeah, I would assume he would come in with a bunch of clay court tournaments ready to go and a much more and much more of a threat. Agreed. Yannick Sinner announces himself at this year's French Open. He joins a, a very exclusive list. I don't have it on hand, but if you look at, you know, teenagers who have made quarterfinals of majors recently. It's a short list. It's a good list. And Yannick Sinner puts himself on it. What's your evaluation of Sinner and the things he can do on the tennis court? Oh, I love the way he played even on his way to Nadal. And then I, I was sorry they didn't get the first set. Just Rafa would have come back. I'm convinced of that. But I wish we'd seen him have to come back and fight back against that kid. And he obviously understandably showed some immaturity in the way he tried failed to serve out the first set. Plus he led three, one in the second and wasn't able to capitalize on that. But I'm, I'm really impressed. He generates pace so easily at the easy power that everybody talks about. It's there with him. He's got the mentality. He, 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 the, the beauty of it was he never, he's playing the Dow in the quarterfinals at Roland Garros and he didn't seem all in awe of him at all. I thought that was terrific for a kid like that, you know, to, 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 to comport himself that way, conduct himself with such, confidence and conviction it was great to see no i i th i told uh yubala scanagata our, our friend from italy that i think that next year top 10 in the world that's what i see for sinner by by the middle to latter stages of, of 2021 i expect him to be there i think he's on that track as well i think he's a player who when when it's all said and done could go down or, or will go down as one of the great backhands oh it's a beauty seen. I mean, oh, I just, yeah. the, the shot blows me away. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it, again, that's, that's where the easy power, you see, notice it even more there than off his forehand. And mm -hmm. it, it's a very graceful looking shot and, and, and technically almost perfect. I'd like to see any teaching pro break that shot down and tell me what's wrong with it because it looks pretty perfect to me. No, I, I'm, I'm as excited about him as you are. And I, I think he's going to go far in some of these big tournaments next year again. This was the start of something substantial for him. 
let's end on the women. Um, Iga Sriatek with just an unprecedented run um, and just comes out of nowhere, unseated, unheralded, 19 years old, doesn't just win, but basically blows everyone out of the water. I mean, it's, it's almost difficult to, to wrap your mind around it. How, why, like how almost, how is this explainable that someone can, you know, just basically have the amount of success that she had without really any kind of ease in period? No, you can't explain it, but it's, it's, it's inspiring to see because how often have we seen somebody like her beat a Halep one and two and then have the letdown in the next round. You know, it, it happens. It's happened so frequently with so many young players and then they grow into their talent. She just kept barreling along 28 games in 14 sets. I mean, across seven matches, that's kind of crazy when you think about it, and especially given the opposition. Now, there were those who said, Gil, that she was, uh, that, that they thought Kennan was really hurting in the second set after she went to, lock, to the locker room, got herself retaped on, the, on her left leg. I don't know. I, I, I take her word for it. I don't think Kennan is acting, but I think she was going to get beaten. I think I, th- I think this girl was just outplaying her already. You know, would would Kennan maybe have gotten a few more games in the second set, perhaps? But uh, the Polish girl is just she's so smooth and so such an all around talent that I can't believe. I have to agree with John McEnroe. I can't imagine we're not going to see her win five or six majors. She's not going to be a, any one slam wonder, and she's very mentally mature as well, which I which I like. She started it off with a bang, that's for sure. Maybe an example of a player so young that she didn't even really realize what she was doing. You know, could be, could be, but at some point you'd figure it would dawn on her you know, somewhere along you would. The, the, in a fortnight at a major at Roland Garros like that. So again, I, I think it should have hit her after Halep. It should have hit her after Halep, and it didn't. She just kept going. So I, I, I really, I really hope. Uh, I, I can't wait to watch her play again and. 2021. And I, I've got to believe we're going to see her go deep into many majors and, and probably win, probably pull off at least one more next year. Yeah. Fascinating story. The, the women's game continues to be in a tremendous place with the, the budding stars that they have. Uh, Steve, any, any final thoughts, anything we didn't get to? No, I think we covered it. I think we covered it. I think I'm probably sure I'm looking forward to the, the, I'm glad we still have a few big events coming up. A lot of the top players, including Djokovic, going to Vienna in a few weeks, and then they're going to the Paris indoor event and finally London for the ATP final. So we have that to look forward to. But I do think that Rafa sounds like he may shut the shop down, and I wouldn't blame him. He's thinking of – he hasn't made up his mind yet, but it sounds like he's thinking about not playing anymore this year. He he knows it's going to be very, be very hard for him to catch Djokovic for number one. So then the question becomes, is it worth making an all-out bid to win the ATP finals which he's never won. I don't think so. I think he's better off to just train and get ready for the Australian because if there's one thing he proved to himself, Gil, here he was gone for six months and he was very, uh, and he was, he was almost pessimistic and he loses to Schwartzman in Rome, but then he was, he was the same old Rafa at Roland Garros and sweeping through the tournament without losing a set. So I just feel like that proves to him that he doesn't necessarily have to play a lot these days. He's seeing that more and more. So I, I do think uh, it, it's too bad if we miss him down the stretch here, but it, it'll still be fun to watch Djokovic and team and Sispidis and Medvedev and the others go at it in these last couple of events of 2020. 
Yeah, certainly. It makes sense for Nadal. Indoor, hardcore, no major in right. sight. He's trying right. to put years on his career. I don't think he should play. No, no. And the thing is, his body, he just looked so physically spry. Everything was so right with him in Rolling and, and And even the cold weather couldn't hinder him. So I just think he... I, I believe that's the decision he'll make is, is to skip the indoor hard and just get ready for Australia. Plus there's the quarantine to consider too. So he wants to be uh, ready to go in Melbourne. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on again. Bill, thanks. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.